0: This is the Institute for Music Leadership. Just start recording before I forget. Um, yeah. So, what's your uh, what's your what's your go to like? What are you most excited about about, about Thanksgiving? Like, what's your go to dish that you could eat like? four helpings of
1: probably creamed corn and i didn't even have it until until later in my life but i just love it it's sweet
0: i'm no that's i'm definitely all about the mashed potatoes all day every day uh we're even having mashed potato bowls for dinner tomorrow oh (laughs) yummy which is basically yeah here's colleen
1: hello good to see you
0: we were just yeah, talking about our favorite, our favorite Thanksgiving sides, Colleen. Oh, what's what's your go to?
2: Um, hmm. I mean, probably stuffing to be the most classic, you know, all right. but okay. um, all right. Pretty much everything. My mom makes a really good. She makes like two cranberry things and there's there's like a hot one and a cold one.
0: Ooh, um, hot cranberries. And, yeah. It's, Welcome it's, to it's another really episode of Create, like, Inspire, Lead. I'm Stephen Bigner. I promise this episode isn't just going to be about Thanksgiving sides, though I'm sure it could be. Maybe we'll start another podcast called Corny Copia, which will be a mix of side recipes and corny puns and dad jokes. Or maybe not. Um, no. Today, our student worker, Emma Gierzahl, is back to conduct another interview, this time from a fellow percussionist.
2: Yeah, so my name is Colleen Bernstein. I am a freelance percussionist. Um, music teacher, creative collaborator, uh, currently living in New York City.
0: Colleen did her undergrad at Eastman. She was performance and music ed, graduated in 2016. And after that, she went on to get her master's from the University of Michigan. And then?
2: I lived out near Detroit for a little bit, and I recently moved to the city at the beginning of the pandemic.
0: She was able to delay her move a little bit to just after the worst of the spike in the city.
2: And so it's been like, obviously, it's been much better down here for a long time, and now it's getting worse again. So, yeah, this
0: is probably so lockdown in a New right? York City apartment. Like- but Colleen is keeping plenty busy, so really and we'll get into what she's been up to in just a little bit. But when Emma first floated the idea to interview Colleen, there were a couple of reasons why she wanted to talk with her. And one of the big reasons was to talk about Colleen's project, Strength and Sensitivity. Now, this was supposed to be a one-time concert that has turned into a pretty adaptable series. It combines music, poetry, and audience interaction and creates opportunities for performers and audiences with diverse perspectives and experiences to share, listen, learn, and, and progress towards a more gender-equal society. And since the inaugural concert, she's done other runouts in Boston, Chicago, phoenix there would have been a strength and sensitivity austin this year as well but that was canceled due to covid and she's even partnered with up down percussion a quartet from columbus georgia to develop a special touring concert featuring new music and slam poetry making up down percussion sort of the first strength and sensitivity ambassadors i asked colleen why she decided to call this project strength and sensitivity
2: um, so the reason I called it strength and sensitivity was I, I feel like those are two words that are very often attached to opposite ends of the gender spectrum. I feel like very often we consider people who are more masculine to be strong and people who are more feminine to be sensitive. And so the initial idea of the concert was to present music from both sides of the spectrum that sort of flipped that on its head. We played a lot of like really loud, in-your-face music, by female composers and some really delicate, intimate music that was written by men, and so that was really the initial idea, to take those two opposite ends and say, hey, it doesn't have to be this way, you know, we all are both strong and sensitive. Uh, So that, that was the idea behind the name.
0: Emma will talk with Colleen a little more about that later, but the other reason Emma wanted to interview Colleen had to do with representation. Now, I'm not a percussionist, and I'm not an orchestral player, so my knowledge of the orchestral world is already pretty limited, but I couldn't think of any female percussionists in major orchestras.
2: The one person that stands out is Cynthia Yeh in the Chicago Symphony. Chicago. Okay. Um, but I did I did kind of explore that for a project when I was at Michigan, um, where the, pro- the project wasn't really about uh gender disparities but i kind of made it about gender disparities <laughs> um and so i did a little bit of research about that i looked at all of the you know maybe the top 10 um major orchestras in the country and i looked at you know who's in their percussion section who are, who's in their timpani section and um you know patsy dash and cynthia ye from chicago were the two people um i also looked at you know broadway major broadway shows there were no women playing on the shows for drum set or percussion books. Um, I looked at the, you know, sort of major um, percussion quartets or contemporary ensembles, like the major contemporary ensembles that have percussionists. And for the most part, those are white men as well.
0: Um, And while ultimately it was never really Colleen's idea to play in a major orchestra, she still noticed the lack of representation. And she admits that wasn't the main reason she chose the career path that she did, but... um,
2: but I think that it, I guess it didn't help, you know, I could certainly say that, you know, not seeing the representation. And um, I think the most important thing for me with that is, is realizing how much representation does matter. And so right now we're just talking about women in general, but thinking more specifically about people of color, you know, about black women. Um, if you ever sort of analyze the statistics of who's in the groups and you start to break it down Um, by more specifics, uh, you know, the numbers get sadder and sadder and more frustrating. So it it really points out to me the importance of representation at every level.
0: Coming up, we'll hear Emma and Colleen's conversation and learn more about strength and sensitivity find out about Colleen's career path. More after a short break. Are you preparing for upcoming grad school auditions? Or are you graduating this year and need to start applying to jobs? Maybe you're a first year and wondering, what's the difference between a resume and a CV? Well, the Office of Careers and Professional Development can help. Our career advisor, Dr. Blair Kerner, will be around to take virtual appointments throughout January before the spring semester starts. You can fine-tune your resume and cover letter, go over career goals, create and perfect your teaching philosophy, even get some great interview prep so you can nail admissions interviews or land your next gig. Students can make appointments with Blair during January and throughout the school year by using Handshake. Simply go to rochester.joinhandshake.com and log in with your NetID and password. That's rochester.joinhandshake.com. Welcome back. Now. Without further ado, here is Emma Geerzel's interview with Colleen Bernstein.
1: Yeah, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your project, Strength and Sensitivity, and what went into, what inspired
2: it, and what went into creating it? Yeah, absolutely. So Strength and Sensitivity is kind of a multi-pronged project. It's part uh, concert program, it's part commissioning initiative, and it's part Uh, collaborative platform. So it's a way for me to kind of work with other artists. And all of that is designed around the idea of um, sparking conversation and maybe new pathways of thought, maybe some new action around the idea of gender equality, as well as intersectional feminism. Um, So most of the concerts, we try to combine contemporary music, usually percussion music, with poetry. And there's always theme, but in general it's about gender equality or intersectionality and exploring those, those topics with the goal that an audience member um, and maybe even myself and the other performers would come away with maybe some new perspectives on those issues and maybe some new ideas as to how each of us can play a part in working towards a more gender equal world. Um, so to tell you a little bit about how it started, I started the project when I was doing my master's at the university of Michigan in 2018 was the first concert. So that was my first year doing my master's. And, um, I was experiencing within the school, but also within the percussion studio, I was experiencing in general, a culture that I felt had room to grow in terms of being inclusive. I thought that there was a lot of room to grow in terms of just everyday school culture, everyday studio culture, there was work to be done in terms of being more inclusive, in terms of considering individual identities and the ways that all of our identities kind of play into our everyday experiences with one another. So I was thinking about a way to kind of broach that subject to my studio mates and to the school as a whole. And I thought that it might be more effective to put on a concert themed around those ideas and to include my my studio mates and my colleagues on the concert and to put something together as a group that was based around those themes as opposed to something that was maybe more conventional like forcing some kind of large sit down conversation where everybody sits in a circle and we try to talk about you know, the issues. And I never really feel like those um, get far enough or they, they don't always, I, I don't feel like I leave those types of situations with a, a good grip on the issues from an emotional perspective you know, or with a way to to kind of move forward. So I thought, well, why don't we put together a concert? Um, So I approached my, my studio teachers and I asked if we could do kind of an extra, an extra percussion ensemble concert or just basically like an extracurricular event that I would organize. And then I involved as many studio mates as possible, as many of them as were available and wanted to play. We had probably about maybe 18 people in total, which was most of the studio. So that was really cool to see that people wanted to be involved. And we put together a concert um, that included music by female composers, music by male composers, music from you know, people on every part of the spectrum. And the goal was really, again, like I said, to, to spark dialogue about gender equality. So it was a really wide range of pieces. I think I think it was really interesting. Some of them were specifically written with the idea of gender equality or gender dynamics in mind. Some of them were not. but. Thematically, we were able to kind of fit them into the program in a way that blended everything together. And then I also collaborated for that first project with some of the gender equality groups on the University of Michigan campus, particularly the He for She University of Michigan chapter. Uh, he for She is a United Nations initiative towards gender equality, basically saying that in order for any progress to happen towards gender equality, men need to be involved in the conversation as well as the action. That's why it's called he for she. And I've always felt like that was a good, that was like a fitting theme um, in the percussion world, being that it's so heavily dominated by men, um, that it's really important that, that this idea of he for she comes into play within our world of percussion in particular. So I partnered with that group, and we were able to kind of make the concert part of He for She Arts Week, which is an international festival. So we were sort of like an unofficial part. There were things happening in New York City, and. Paris that year, I think, and all places around the world, different museums and art galleries and things would host events. And so we hosted our concert that same week. We were able to kind of support that initiative with our own little concert in Ann Arbor. So yeah, that's a little bit about the the first project. Since then, it's, it's changed a lot, but that was the initial idea.
1: Yeah, I think that's so cool how you ended up being able to include the rest of your studio in the project rather than having... Cause you're right. I've been to so many of, you know, in the beginning when you have orientation in school and they have everyone that you you talk about sexual harassment and a lot of times some of the men will be making comments like, well, I'm not a bad guy. Why does this matter for me? And so I think because it makes them feel left out sometimes. So having everyone together and you're all working together for that end, I thought was really smart. That's really awesome. Yeah. Thanks.
2: I think it was. I think it was effective because it. I don't think people felt that I was pointing fingers at any individual. I, I was more trying to to say, hey, this is something I think we should work on together as a team. Let's tackle it together. And I just happened to be the person who, you know, kind of got the ball rolling and made sure that the the show actually happened. <laughs> but I was really yeah. grateful to have so many people from the studio um, playing. I really didn't know what to expect when I put the the ask out there. I wasn't sure how many people would wanted to take on another project? Would be interested in this particular project. So that was definitely really encouraging uh, to see the the involvement yeah. from my studio mates.
1: Yeah, it was a brave move, and it really paid off. Um, so my next question for you is, uh, what were your career aspirations while you were at Eastman, and do you th- did you know that you would be doing this kind of work in your future?
2: Um, I don't think I knew directly. I think that. Um, one of the best things about my time at Eastman was that I opened a lot of different doors and kind of peeked in and, you know, explored a lot of different career paths or, you know, smaller like roads that I could go down. And I felt like I had a lot of support to do that from all of my professors and my colleagues at Eastman. So um, I did, I majored in music ed as well as performance. And I kind of went back and forth every year, maybe even every semester feeling like more pulled in one direction. There were some times where I felt like I really want to teach full-time. That's what I want to do forever. There were times that I thought I really wanted to focus on performing. And then within that, I had my different like interests and I was able to kind of explore all of those. So I feel like I, d- I didn't come into Eastman with one specific idea. I was never that person who came in saying, I want to be a soloist or I want to be, you know, an orchestral player or anything like that. Um, I came in thinking, I just want to be around music, and I want to do music all the time, and, you know, every day, that's what I want to do. So um, I never came in with a specific goal, but I think throughout my time at Eastman, the things that spoke to me the most were the projects that had some sort of connection to a community that had some kind of, um, yeah, some kind of component to them where there was maybe a combination of music with a broader topic or music in conjunction with another group. I love to collaborate with people, um, and I love to I love to create new things. So I guess in that way, I was sort of set up to um, create something like strength and sensitivity. Like the, the whole process, when I, when I did that first concert, I had the idea, um, it really kind of crystallized for me, and we started basically the, the beginning of the winter semester planning the, the concert, and it happened in the second week of March. So it was really about maybe seven or eight weeks of from kind of asking my professor, can we do this concert, to putting on a full show. Um, we did it at an off-campus, or on-campus, but outside of the music school venue. So we went down to the main campus of U of M. So it was everything from putting the whole show together in that amount of time. So I guess, you know, my my time at Eastman, I didn't necessarily imagine I would be doing that particular show, but I was lucky enough to have a lot of experiences that led me to the point where I could feel like I could do that and make it happen in such a short time and all of that.
1: Yeah. What, mm-hmm. One of those experiences I was reading about, um, you did a collaboration with the Strong Museum of Play and did different pieces about different toys that they had in the mm-hmm. museum. Yeah. I was wondering if, do you
2: feel like that was a bit of a jumping off point for you in your career? I think so in some ways. I, I had so much fun doing that project uh, it was you know, with the, toy, the National Toy Hall of Fame, which I didn't know existed until I was there in Rochester. And I just think it's one of the most fun things. So it was really, really fun to get to create a project that focused on contemporary music, but tied it in with uh, beloved toys. So I think, yeah, I think doing that, the process of collaborating with the museum uh, to create something that worked for Eastman as well as um, the museum... You know, and then seeing how we were able to kind of enhance the experience that museum goers had, we played concerts of the the music. So what what I did was commission pieces from student composers at Eastman. They got to choose one of the toys from the National Toy Hall of Fame. There's about sixty something toys, and so the composers got to pick a toy. They got to write for um, a solo or duo, basically open instrumentation. And then I found uh, friends of mine and. You know, fellow students at Eastman to play the pieces, and we did a concert at the museum where we premiered all the pieces. Um, we did this for two years, so we ended up with uh, ten or fifteen pieces, I think. And so we had—it was just—it was—it was a lot of fun. And uh, the concerts were publicized, but not too much. So I think it was like more of an experience when people came into the museum; they happened to s- sort of stop by and see that there was a concert happening. And I really enjoyed. That that we were sort of there enhancing the experience of the museum, and you know really fitting what we were doing with contemporary music into a larger organization, into a larger kind of fabric. Um, It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. So I was curious, what encourages you about the future of our field, and what work do you think still needs to be done? I think well, there's a lot that encourages me. I think um, there's sort of a I feel like there's a continued Expansion of the idea of what's possible in our fields, which I think is really great. I feel like, um, particularly with people that are our age, younger folks, there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of drive to try new things, um, whether that's new concert venues, new like ways of presenting concerts, new types of collaborations, um, or even the language of contemporary music is always changing. And so I, I feel like the idea of what's possible is always growing. And so that definitely encourages me. And like I said, I think there's a lot of people who are taking it upon themselves to make the change and to do things that are outside of the box. So I'm always excited by that. And also excited by the amount of support in the community that I think everybody has for one another. It's always really nice to see people create new ideas and the rest of the community support that. Um, And it, it kind of rolls over so that the next time you create something, people support you. And I think that's a really exciting part of our industry. Um, I think in terms of what needs to be done, what work still needs to be done, I would say that I think more needs to be done and it needs to be done more quickly in terms of social justice, in terms of anti-racism work in particular. And I think, like I mentioned, there's a lot of individual people who are taking it upon themselves to do these things, but I would love to see larger institutions Um, and the organizations that are standard bearers for classical music, I'd really love to see them take bolder steps and do it sooner. So there's certainly a lot of work to be done. I'm hopeful that it can be done, but I'd like to see more change. Um, I think it needs to be treated more urgently, even than it is now. I think it needs to be, you know, the top priority for our industry. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So we were talking a little bit earlier about your new teaching job and about how it's online now, but I was wondering Mm. if you could tell us just a little bit about the job and uh, what sort of work it is.
2: Yeah, so this uh, school year I started teaching full-time as a to K-8 general music teacher. Um, I teach at a public charter school in the Bronx. We are fully remote, so I actually just teach from this room right now, Ah. but um, (laughs) we've been fully remote the whole time. We were one of a few schools that because we were a public charter we didn't have to comply with the um, public schools when they reopened we were able to kind of make a decision that um, the school leadership thought was best for the families and the teachers and everything so we've been fully remote which has been a challenge but has also been nice in this time to not have to transition back and forth between in-person learning and remote learning um, i think at least now we have a schedule the students know more or less when they need to be on zoom And um, it definitely has challenges, but I think that's one thing that's nice is the consistency of it. Um, So I teach, uh, like I said, general music K-6. to The 7th and 8th graders, I teach music elective class where I get to see a smaller group of students every day of the week for a quarter. And then every quarter I teach a new class. So I get to design those classes. So right now we're doing uh, drumming and rhythm around the world class. Um, the first quarter, we focused mostly on West African music, as well as um, countries in the Caribbean area and Latin America. And now we're sort of touching on a lot of other areas. We're starting with Brazil this week. We're talking about samba music, but we're going to get all the way as far as um, India and Japan. So that's a lot of fun. Um, and I'm also going to do a, an American music history class with, with that seventh and eighth grade group and a songwriting class in the last quarter. So, yeah. Um, Altogether, I have almost 600 students because I teach pretty much everybody in the school. And uh, so it's been a lot to get to know them over Zoom when you're missing all the in-person, you know, interactions. But I feel really lucky to have the job and to get to make music every day. And uh, so I'm definitely really grateful for that.
1: Yeah. And the kids are really lucky to be having such, i that's so cool that they have such a specific kind of music class that you would focus in on on a few cultures and not just have a general
2: music class for everyone. That's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. They, yeah. they let me kind of decide, um, they let me sh- to shape the music electives however I want, and I thought, well, especially in my first year, we're doing this on Zoom, I want to talk about some things that I know a little bit about, so I thought we would start with with drumming and we get to we get to yeah. watch a lot of videos from you know master players from around the world from these different countries and cultures and that's been really great um despite the online learning it's it's been great because we've been able to explore using mm-hmm. using the internet we've been able to you know access a lot of resources and uh so that's that's kind of made it possible to still have a class like that yeah
1: mm-hmm. yeah definitely so I was wondering, uh, do you have any advice for musicians early in their careers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that that I learned at Eastman probably in my first month that I think is just great advice, and I'm just going to repeat it here, was from uh, Dean Paul Burgett. Uh, he gave a talk at my freshman colloquium class. Uh, like I said, I think it was probably the
0: Um, Hi, it's me. So Colleen's Zoom connection got a little wonky at this point, so I'm going to fill in some of the gaps here. Essentially, during her first few weeks of school at Eastman, she heard the infamous talk from Dean Burgett, affectionately known as the Fiery Furnace Talk. Um, We've included a link to the YouTube video that Colleen's about to mention, and it is truly incredible. Um, If you have time, you should definitely check it out. Okay, here's Colleen again.
2: And actually, if you look on YouTube, you can find you can find a recording of it, and uh, the recording is of when he gave it to my class. So I've watched that a couple times over the years, and it's really fun because I get to see all of my friends and classmates back when we were freshmen, and we're all watching him with wide eyes, and you know, um, so that's it's like extra special to watch it again. But um, that that talk, um, one of the main points that Dean Burgett tried to make is he had a saying that passion and ability drive ambition. And that's really stuck with me. It really moved me when I heard it the first time. And I think that's been kind of a guidepost for me throughout a lot of my projects, especially considering something like strength and sensitivity where you're getting into work that's a little bit more personal. So thinking about something that you're passionate about, something that you have the ability to do. And then I guess the piece of advice that I would add on to that is to not shy away from that ambition you know, that last part of it. I would really encourage people to start projects and to, you know, set real go- real goals for not a finish line, but some kind of public presentation of a project is always really helpful. I think in classical music, we have a tendency to um, try to hide something away until we think it's perfect or it's as close to perfect as you can get. Um, we have a tendency to do that with music that we're learning. We don't want to play for anybody until until we think that it's like, as good as you can possibly get it, and then we share it. And I think if that mentality kind of goes into the projects and the, the types of work that you want to create, um, it makes it really hard to, to really, you know, take the steps to go forward. So I'd encourage people to um, start doing things and you can always change them. You can always start a concert series and you can change how it looks, what it's about, you know, how it goes. You can always you can always change things. You can always change the name of your project. You can always do, you know, once you start something, you can develop it, but it's really hard to continue if you haven't taken those first steps. So that would be my, my advice to younger people. Yeah.
1: That's such great advice. I remember taking the entrepreneurial thinking class with Jim Dozer, Mm -hmm. and it was built into the pro into the process of the entrepreneurial project that you change things along the way because it can be so daunting to think that you have to have a whole finished product
2: immediately. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So you're absolutely right.
2: Absolutely. Like I said earlier, like the, the first show of strength and sensitivity looks nothing like the most recent, recent version that I did because I never really intended for it to be a, a longer term project. I thought it would be the one concert. I named the concert strength and sensitivity. Um, and, I, I never really thought it was going to be anything else, um, but once I started, you know, continuing with with that basic idea, basic framework, I, I've changed so many elements of it um, that it really doesn't look anything like the first one. So, I think that's a good example of, you know, that idea. You you don't have to keep something the same, and it doesn't mean if you change something, it doesn't mean it's bad. You know, it just yeah. means that you 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 grew, or, you know, you discovered
1: something new. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really been great
2: to talk with you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invite.
0: Special thanks to Colleen Bernstein for talking with us. You can find out more about Colleen and Strength and Sensitivity on her website, which we've linked in the show notes. And thank you to Emma Gearsall for coming up with the idea and questions for this episode. Whenever Emma jumps in to do anything for the IML or the podcast, I barely have to do anything. She's just so on top of it, so truly thank you, Emma. This episode was mixed by Francis Insenhofer, the intro music was written by me, and our outro music was composed by Alexa Silverman. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for an episode, you can email me directly, or you can leave a comment on our SoundCloud page. Go out, make art, do good work. From the IML, I'm Stephen Bigner. Until next time.